that any person who, under color of any law, statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any state, shall subject or cause to be subjected any person within the jurisdiction of the United States to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution of the United States shall any such law, statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of the state to the contrary, notwithstanding, be liable to the party injured in any action at law, suit in equity, or other proper proceeding for redress. Now, long-time short-circuit listeners will know that that is Section 1 of the Third Enforcement Act, or otherwise known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, that Congress enacted into law in 1871. And today, with slight modifications, it is known as 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. Now, in the past on this podcast, when we've talked about Section 1983, it's usually in the context of enforcing the 14th Amendment, which often means enforcing the Bill of Rights against uh, state and local officials and municipalities. But today, we have it about something else in the Constitution that you don't hear so much about, and that's the 13th Amendment, which as you should know, says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today on Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. Now, we're recording this today, uh, which is Thursday, December 15th, 2022. We won't be releasing this for a little bit. So wherever you are, even if you just downloaded it just now after you got the notification on your phone, um, you likely are sometime in the future where you are gathered with family and friends, um, enjoying some time off perhaps, maybe a little eggnog, ringing in the new year. Um, but back here in the past, it's not like that. Uh, we are hard at work defending uh, civil liberties and the civil rights of all Americans. And to discuss such matters, I have with me today two eminent uh, civil liberty attorneys who are my colleagues here at the Institute for Justice. One of them is uh, Jabba Sestius Abili, who uh, I'd like to have him please correct me as the pronunciation of his name. Hi, Anthony. Um, it was a valiant effort. It's uh, Jabba Situashvili. Thank you, Jabba. Uh, my, my practice before we started recording uh, was complete failure. Uh, Jabba's going to be talking <laughs> about a different case in a little bit, and that involving um, where you were born and uh, national origin discrimination, and also wrapped up with qualified immunity. But first, we're going to be talking to my colleague, Ben Field, who just did something that uh, many attorneys go through their entire lives of practice without doing, and that's filing a petition for certiorari at the U.S. Supreme Court. So, Ben, tell us about filing a petition for certiorari, a cert petition, but also uh, what the heck it has to do with the 13th Amendment. Sure. So I think it probably makes sense just to start you know, 16 years ago when the facts that gave rise to this case began, which I think, you know, just 
setting it off there gives you a sense of how difficult and how long it can be for people who have had their constitutional rights violated to get any sort of redress. So in 2006 and 2007, um, one of our clients, uh, Felix Vinlon, who's an attorney in, who practices in Queens, New York, was referred by the Philippine consulate to 10 nurses who were working on Long Island um, and they were in a terrible situation where they, you know, they had come from the Philippines. Some of them were even trained as doctors, uh, but they came from the Philippines to be nurses in Long Island. And they were promised by the nursing home company that they'd be assigned to a particular facility. They were promised particular housing and pay and benefits and things like that, only to discover that when they arrived, they were put in overcrowded housing uh, that was just terrible. In one case, you know, you had multiple people living like in a one-bedroom apartment without a working bathroom. Uh, they weren't being given the wages they were promised, and they were being farmed out as contract laborers to some of the worst nursing facilities in New York that actually were the subject of a subsequent expose by ProPublica pointing out how terrible that, that they were. Um, and so they wanted to quit their job, and that Comes, that's where the 13th Amendment comes in. In the United States, you, there's no such thing as involuntary servitude. And so except in certain extreme cases, you have a right to leave a job that you don't want. And the nurses were in that situation. Uh, they wanted to know what their legal redress were, so they, they were referred to Felix. Felix both advised them, you know, you can quit as long as you don't leave during the middle of a shift and give the nursing home ample time to find uh, replacements for your next shift. Uh, and he also filed a discrimination claim on their behalf with a unit of the Department of Justice that deals with discrimination for people who are brought in as immigrants uh, to work in the United States. Uh, the nurses did quit, and you would think that would be the end of it. But their employer was a large nursing home company that was very, very politically connected. You know, if you read about them, you'll see they had ties to, you know, the New York senators, the then governor, the mayor of New York. Uh, and they went out of their way to make sure that nurses who worked for them didn't have the option to leave their job uh, voluntarily. And so they complained to nurse, New York's nursing regulator. They complained to the police. They even filed a lawsuit. All of those went nowhere. And the court, the nursing regulatory agency, and the police all said the nurses had done nothing wrong. But then they flexed their political muscle and had their fixer lawyer arrange a meeting directly with the district attorney in Suffolk County. And he and his assistant were much more interested. Um, and so Thomas Spoda, the district attorney, sidebar, he's actually now in federal prison for other violations of civil rights, uh, and his deputy, uh, Leonard Lotto, uh, investigated, um, despite knowing that these other agencies had already said the nurses did nothing wrong, and they indicted them and Felix, the lawyer, on a number of charges of patient endangerment as well as conspiracy and solicitation. And for two years, this indictment hung over them, and it really ruined their lives for those two years. So just imagine trying to work in the healthcare field when you have indictments hanging over your head for endangering your patients, uh, or trying to be a lawyer when you have a bunch of criminal indictments hanging over you. But two years later, they eventually got some relief when a New York appellate court said that this prosecution just obviously violated both the 13th Amendment and the First Amendment. 
For the 13th Amendment, the court said that the prosecution was, quote, the antithesis of the free and voluntary system of labor envisioned by the framers of the 13th Amendment. Ben, I'm just, cur- I'm just curious. I've read the cert petition, of course, but how were they even able to, to do that? Because usually, you know, having an indictment out there isn't something you can easily challenge uh, without, you know, it eventually going to trial. Yeah, so it's an extraordinary writ. Um, It's called a writ of prohibition. And it's when you go to an appellate court and you say what the, you know, in this case, what the prosecutor is doing below is so clearly unlawful and so clearly outside the legitimate bounds of his jurisdiction that you should not allow this to go forward. And what the appellate court said is, yes, in this case, trying to punish somebody for leaving a job voluntarily is involuntary servitude and illegal. And it's also equally obviously a constitutional violation, in this case of the First Amendment, to prosecute a lawyer for offering good faith legal advice. Uh, So the New York Appellate Division quashed the prosecution. And so the next natural thing for uh, the 10 nurses and Felix the lawyer to do was to seek some redress. You know, the provision that you cited, which is now Section 1983, gives every person in the United States whose constitutional rights are violated a cause of action to sue the officials who committed that violation. And here you've got a New York court that's already said, your First and 13th Amendment rights were violated. Uh, The prosecutors were without their jurisdiction in bringing those charges. You would think it would be an open and shut case. But when they sued under Section 1983, they ran into the buzzsaw of absolute prosecutorial immunity. And that's a doctrine that the Supreme Court created in 1976. Uh, If listeners go back to the beginning of the podcast and listen to the actual text of Section 1983, they'll notice that there's nothing about immunity for prosecutors in it. But the Supreme Court has said that prosecutors are absolutely immune uh, for anything they do, even if it's a bad faith, you know, corrupt prosecution, uh, they're absolutely immune. Uh, But there are a couple exceptions to that, one of which is when the prosecutors clearly lack authority or jurisdiction for what they're doing. And this case eventually went up to the Second Circuit, which decided it earlier this year. And the majority said, uh, essentially, well, as long as this is the type of charge that a prosecutor can typically charge. So here, there's a criminal statute that has to do with patient endangerment. If the prosecutor charges that statute, then he gets absolute immunity. We don't look into whether there was actually a legal or factual basis for the charge. And what the dissent, Judge Chin in the Second Circuit said is, that is not at all a good faith reading of what this exception is supposed to be. Um, In this case, sure, the prosecutors like cited a statute, but it should have been obvious to any reasonable official that charging the nurses and their lawyer in this circumstance obviously violated the First and the 13th Amendments. And I think uh, I'll just quote directly from what Judge Chin said. You know, he said that, uh, you know, specifically with respect to Felix, that the indictment for him was particularly outrageous. Quote, surely a prosecutor has no colorable authority to bring charges against the lawyer for giving legal advice to clients and for filing a claim of discrimination on their behalf. And so what our cert petition does is two things. The first thing that we're arguing is that Judge Chin was 100% right. Going back over 200 years to Chief Justice John Marshall, 
the Supreme Court has repeatedly applied this common law exception to official immunities when officials are acting without any lawful authority. And if you go back to those cases from the early 19th century, the court really looks into, okay, what was the statutory basis for the official doing what they were doing? Uh, And did he actually have authority to do what he did? Or was there some statutory or constitutional boundary that he obviously transgressed? Uh, And if the Second Circuit majority's test is right, that's just not a meaningful inquiry. Any official can cite a statute saying that they have authority to do something, um, and then we wouldn't look any further, and they'd automatically get immunity. So you could have a situation where a prosecutor you know, charged a defense lawyer uh, for being an accessory after the fact if he just wanted to knock that criminal defense lawyer out of the case. You could have a situation, you know, a prosecutor in New York could pick up a phone book from California and pick a statute at random and charge somebody. And under the Second Circuit sets, you just look like, okay, well, it's ordinarily you can't charge someone, you know, who lives in a completely different jurisdiction, but he cited a New York statute. He's within the jurisdiction, absolute immunity. The legislature could just pass a law that, you know, prosecutors can use when they can't find anything else. And then that absolutely always immunize them. And in fact, that kind of happened in this case. One of the conspiracy charges against Felix charged him with the supposed end of his conspiracy was getting the nurses a new job, which is obviously totally lawful and protected by the 13th Amendment. And the supposed overt acts in support of that were filing the federal discrimination claim and giving them legal advice, which is obviously appropriate and protected by the First Amendment. So that's exactly what you're saying. They just looked at some broad statute uh, and put it in an indictment. And according to the Second Circuit, you don't look any further. And so we think that that just contradicts centuries of Supreme Court precedent and the common law before it. But then the second thing we're asking is, if we're wrong about that, um, then this absolute immunity has clearly gotten so far away from the original purpose of of Section 1983 that the court should scrap it altogether. And there are at least a couple good reasons for that. First, just factually, if you can think of anything that Congress wanted to do in 1871 when it passed the Ku Klux Klan Act, it was protecting people's 13th Amendment rights and the ability of a lawyer to seek the federal government's protection for their federal rights. And in this case, apparently that just has no constitutional protection whatsoever. And so if that's what the result of prosecutorial immunity is, then it should be scrapped. And in 1871, there was no prosecutorial absolute immunity. The court has actually acknowledged that since it invented the immunity in 1976. And the principal reason that the court gave for creating absolute immunity in the 70s was this idea that, well, it would be easy for plaintiffs to get around Uh, qualified immunity by just alleging that prosecutors acted in bad faith. But as listeners to the podcast know, uh, after that, the Supreme Court changed the qualified immunity rule. So it's now an objective test. And you can't get around it just by alleging bad faith. So the principal reason the court gave for creating absolute immunity for prosecutors just doesn't apply anymore. And we're hopeful that the extraordinary facts of this case will persuade the court to either you know, reaffirm and make sure that the common law exception for when a prosecutor is acting outside his authority is actually meaningful, or to take what we think is the more fundamental uh, approach in saying, look, in 1871, there was no absolute prosecutorial immunity. The policy reasons we gave in the 70s are wrong and haven't been borne out, and we should just scrap it all together. Jabba, any other thoughts for scrapping it all together? Yeah, they should. (laughs) I mean, 
I, I think ultimately everything that Ben said about kind of the implications of the rule, right? Whether the rule as applied by the Second Circuit or the rule even kind of like somewhat cabined the way that, you know, um, Judge Shin said it, it is already currently cabined. Either way, what you're looking at is a situation where um, prosecutors know they can skate, you know, and that like there won't be any real consequences for their conduct because ultimately what's what's going to stop them other than, um, you know, individual enforcement of these rights? Almost always nothing, right? This is one of those cases where, you know, one of the one of the district attorneys is has been imprisoned, but I don't, it, as my understanding, it wasn't rising from this con the conduct in this case, um, and you know, you can Google how often prosecutors get you know any sort of disciplinary action, let alone some sort of criminal action against them for for their conduct, and it's I don't know the number, I don't have the number in front of me, but it's essentially never. So you need Section nineteen eighty three. I mean, and you, and you need it to be actually a viable um, cause of action that doesn't just get completely eroded and, and subverted by these made up immunities. Ben, do you know the timing on the uh, uh, the case now that it's it's at the court? I believe it was it was filed December 9th. Is that right? That's correct. So we're waiting on the to see uh, how and whether the other side responds, uh, which will probably be sometime in January. So hopefully, uh, we'll get at least uh, the court will get a chance to consider it sometime in the first quarter of 2023. Well, and if listeners in the meantime want to learn more, uh, and they, they don't already, about absolute immunity. We talked about that in the last season of Bound by Oath, our sister podcast. And so we'll put a link up to that um, episode um, in the show notes. So if you, and if, if it's been a while since you listened to Bound by Oath and you want to, you want to uh, dig into it again, you can, uh, you can go and listen a second time. Well, moving from the 13th Amendment uh, to part of the 14th Amendment, which has to do with discrimination, we're going to go to where I live, Minnesota, and the Eighth Circuit, and some um, not the smartest policies uh, that some law enforcement have been engaged in there. So, uh, Jabba, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Um... Yeah, I think um, that that's probably a bit of an understatement. I mean, like you like you mentioned, um, this is about the Fourteenth Amendment, right? Um, which which says that you know state officials can't deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And so this case comes to us out of the Eighth Circuit, um, specifically from Anoka County in Minnesota. And what happened here? was that the plaintiff, Miriam Parada, she was in 2017, she was rear-rendered as she was driving her car. She, someone rear-rendered her, um, and eventually a Coon Rapids police officer arrived at the scene. And, I mean, I think we all know that typically uh, when there's a, a, a rear-end accident, the person who does the rear-rending is kind of presumably at fault, right? It's, it's kind of like, you know, well, you're not supposed to rear on people. <laughs> um, so the officer arrives and we have, we're presented with Ms. Parada um, in the, in the kind of front vehicle. And then the, the 
the car behind her who rear-ended her. And long story short, um, the uh, and so I will, I'll note that these facts are taken from Miss um, Prada's third amended complaint in the district court. Um, so what what it says is that this officer. Um, proceeds to let the woman who was driving the the rear-ending vehicle, he lets her go without any sort of citation, without anything. He just says, you know, be on your merry way. But, but when it comes to Miss Parada, uh, he, he keeps her there, and he, he's very interested in Miss Parada. Now, what's one difference between Miss Parada and the driver of the vehicle who hit her? Well, Miss Parada is a Hispanic woman. The driver who hit her was a white woman. So the that that's the second driver... He says, "Be on your merry way." Um, with Miss Prada, he keep, he 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 keeps her there, and he asks her a bunch of questions about her identity, about um, you know where she was born, etc. She provides him um, ample documentation um, of of who she is, and you know where she's from, and 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 all of that. Um, but she's driving without a Minnesota driver's license, so that is obviously an offense. Um, to which, for which he can cite her, um, rather than simply, you know, cite her for that offense, um, and, and let her go for this, you know, you know, minor misdemeanor offense, uh, he decides instead to keep her detained there, make some phone calls, um, to his supervising officers, um, and ultimately decides that he's going to arrest her and bring her to the Anoka County Jail. Now, now this officer in the past has written, um, you know, uh, driving without a license citations before, but it says in the complaint that for at least well over a year he hadn't arrested anybody um, on on this on this misdemeanor violation. So he brings her to the Anoka um, County Jail, and now suddenly his you know his, his point and the justification that he that he gives initially is well I don't know who she is um, even though she's kind of given him you know multiple kind of Mexican consular um, documents showing exactly who she is and where she was born and what her name is and date of birth and all of that well now when he's filling out the intake forms he knows exactly who she is he fills it all out no no such discrepancies um, and he hands and he hands her over to the Anoka County officials. The Anoka County officials, their typical practice in circumstances like this where the person doesn't present any danger is to essentially just kind of process them and then, uh, and then put them in line for immediate release is, is what they usually do. Now, they don't do that, though, whenever they encounter anybody who has been born outside of the United States. So the Anoka County uh, Anoka County had adopted a an unwritten policy that anytime someone comes in born outside of the United States, they don't follow their normal procedures. What they do instead is they keep them there and they subject them to additional procedures in order that the officials can contact um, the federal immigration um, agency, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and essentially see if ICE has an interest in this person. Now, when they do, when when the Anoka County officials do this, they know they they're not doing this on the basis of immigration status. They're doing this strictly on the basis of um, birthplace status, right? Now, as we know, you can be born outside of the United States and still be lawfully present in the United States, not being in violation of any immigration laws. Whether that's because you're here on a permanent visa, a temporary visa, whether you have a green card. Whether you're a citizen, there are myriad ways that you can be born outside of the states 
and being lawfully present in the United States. Your parents could be citizens. You just happen to be born outside the United States like I was. Right. Right. I mean, there's 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 no reason that simply being born outside of the United States tells you tells you anything about a person's immigration status. Um, similarly, you could be born in the United States, but have renounced your this is obviously much more rare, but you could be born in the United States, have renounced your United States citizenship and actually not be um, not be lawfully present in the United States for some some reason, some in some way of run afoul of the immigration laws. Obviously, much more rare. But the, the first point is the obvious one, right? Just because you were born elsewhere has, says nothing about your immigration status. Nevertheless, every time someone um, come, came into the uh, Anoka County Jail, uh, these officials would um, hold them there in order to contact ICE. And if ICE expressed interest in this person, they would, con- they would continue to hold them for ICE to come and get them, irrespective of, again, irrespective of, um, you know, what their normal procedures are about immediate release of non, you know, non-dangerous persons and all of that. So uh, Miss Prada gets held there for, uh, I want to say, I don't remember the exact number, like six extra hours or something like that. Um, they won't let her see a lawyer. They hand her a phone and force her to talk to an ICE official um, without telling them who she's talking to. And the ICE official, and she asked the ICE official, well, should I get a lawyer? And he says, he tells her apparently, no, things will go much more quickly if you don't get a lawyer. And and uh, now this is me. This is me editorializing a little bit. What he means by that is we'll be able to deport you much more quickly if you don't have a lawyer. Um, so basically, she's forced to talk to this this person, never being uh, given the opportunity to see a lawyer who her family had hired actually, but she doesn't know that, and they won't let they won't let her see one. So. Eventually, she does get released into ICE's custody. They they hold her there um, explicitly just so that ICE can come and pick her up. She gets released into ICE's custody, and then later on, she brings suit um, under Section 1983 against both the um, the city of who of the who employed the police department that initially arrested her, and Anoka County for this policy of. Um, holding anybody uh, who was born outside of the United States so that they could um, essentially see if ICE wanted to come and get them. So she sues, she brings a, a bunch of a bunch of different claims and a bu- against a bunch of different defendants. Um, the two major, the, there's only two, there's only two claims at issue in the Eighth Circuit opinion here that we're, that we're going to look, that we're looking at um, against one of the defendants. So there, it, it, <laughs> It is actually really interesting what happens with a lot of the others, but suffice to say that this is this case, unfortunately, is a unicorn in a lot of ways, which is really sad because um, you know it, it, there are so many things that went right here that go wrong in other you know civil rights cases, including many of our own, because there are just so many pitfalls between the immunities, between the difficulty of suing um, cities for their unconstitutional policies. But somehow she overcomes them all, um, and she actually gets to a jury verdict. And the, the, the jury verdict relevant to this Eighth Circuit decision is that the jury found that, well, actually, well, the, the district judge found that Miss um, Prada had stated a claim for an equal protection clause claim for national origin discrimination. Um, and that she had also potentially stated a claim for false imprisonment, 
meaning that she was um, that she was essentially held um, in violation of law. So it goes to the jury. The jury is going to decide first whether she is due any compensatory damages for the equal protection violation, and second, whether there was a false imprisonment, and if so, what whether she's due any damages for that. Now, the jury doesn't give her any uh, compensatory damages for the constitutional violation, the equal protection violation. It just gives her one dollar in nominal damages, but it does award her. for the false imprisonment claim. And so the, that, that, that's where we are on appeal now again. And this is against just the County we're not talking about the individual defendants. And we're not talking about the city defendants um, who employed the police department that initially arrested her. And so the eighth circuit, it's, it's a, um, it's a, it's a refreshingly short opinion, but there's a lot packed into it, and there's a lot that kind of like um, there's a lot of background um, that this that this evokes. But basically, what it says is, yeah, this is this is a pretty cut cut and dry classic example of national origin discrimination. I mean, you're subjecting people born in the country to one set of procedures and policies, and you're subjecting people born outside of the country to another set of uh, procedures and policies. And when you're doing that, you need to survive strict scrutiny. Need to show a compelling interest, and that you have um, narrowly tailored your practices to that compelling interest. Now, the compelling interest that um, Anoka uh, puts forth here is that they say, "Well, we have a compelling interest in being, you know, good partners, you know, uh, uh, to our, you know, our federal officials in at ICE." Now, this is this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is. That there is that Anoka and ICE had no formal relationship. Now there is a co- very controversial mechanism. They're known as 287G agreements, where local departments will often um, partner with ICE and essentially become kind of deputized as as uh, federal immigration enforcement agents, and essentially you know um, be disincentivized from you know doing their duties of criminal law enforcement under state <laughs> under state law, and essentially just kind of focus on helping ICE, you know, round up as many people as they can for deportation. But Anoka doesn't even have any sort of any such agreement. And nevertheless, they say, well, we just we we have a compelling interest in helping our, our, our good friends in the federal government. Um, and the Eighth Circuit says, you know what, look, we'll we'll spot you that. Let's even let's assume that you have that compelling interest. You know, we, we will we, we won't even go there. Now, it's worth noting that the state of Minnesota actually weighed in as amicus here and said, no, this is not a compelling interest because what this what this actually does is make our communities less safe because um, immigrant communities and, and, and immigrant individuals, whether they're regardless of their immigration status, are much less likely to report crimes because they don't want they don't want to be swept up in these in these systems and these procedures. So what these kinds of arrangements um, do is actually. Uh, disserve public trust, disserve public safety, disserve um, criminal law enforcement, state criminal law enforcement. Nevertheless, the circuit says, "Look, we'll spot you that, but regardless, this was um, the, the the means that you that you use to achieve that compelling interest are are clearly um, irrational, right? It doesn't because it doesn't take account of anything except where a person's born, and as we know, a person could be born anywhere and be lawfully." 
in the United States for any number of reasons. So, and, and I mean, let's also maybe just step back for a second and think, well, how do they even, how do they even know where a person is born? Right. And I, and I mean, like what, what's, what's the, what's the, and, and especially if, if you're going to believe a person when they tell you that they were born outside of the United States, but they also tell you that they are lawfully here. Right. Um, well, why are you disbelieving the second part of what they told you? <laughs> But believing the first part, so you believe them that they're born that they're born elsewhere, but you're disbelieving them that they're lawfully yeah. here. If you're gonna and lie, you just say, "Yeah, I was born in Texas or whatever," and that's right? the end of it. Right, but yeah. So the Anoka doesn't care. They say, "Well, so okay, so." And then in, I guess in instances where you know maybe there's some fuzziness there, um, they're really just basing it off of um, off of how people look, right? They're just kind of um, hauling in you know people who appear Hispanic and. And saying, well, let's see, let's see what what ICE is doing here, what ICE wants to do here. Um, and in fact, um, fifty. The stats showed that fifty six percent of the people subjected to this policy were, in fact, American citizens. Right, which just shows you, well, okay, again, where what are they basing this off of? Well, they're just basing this off of um, wholly wholly discriminatory um, characteristics and policies. Um, so the, the, the eighth circuit dispenses with that pretty easily and says, no, this is, this is clearly, uh, this is clearly irrational. This, this doesn't serve any compelling interest and you've over, it's just so over-inclusive that it can't possibly survive. Um, and then it goes on to the immunity defenses, obviously, because, you know, if you're a government defendant, you're obviously going to raise myriad immunity defenses. Now the immunity, def- oh, sorry, and it also um, talks about the um, false imprisonment claim, right? And that's where the immunity defenses actually come in, uh, because under um, under under the federal constitutional claim, they can't claim the the county can't claim qualified immunity. That's uh, reserved only for individuals, right? So. Um, because they have been subjected to the Monell claim, they are liable there, and they don't have, frankly, they have much less incentive, right, to fight the that the constitutional claim because that was just a one dollar award of damages. But here they want to get out from the um, the compensatory damages for the false imprisonment, and there they say, well, here we're actually entitled to two different kinds of immunity. The first is a statutory immunity. And the second is, um, I don't even know where this one comes from, but it an official, an official uh, immunity uh, under state law. Those are both state law immunities, they say, because the, the false imprisonment claim is, is essentially a common law state law claim that they were, that they were subjected to. Um, and the, the Eighth Circuit says that the official immunity claim, you, you raised that too late. So we're not even going to look at it. Now, but I do want to pause on it for a second because, it, I mean, for our purposes, right, at IJ, we want to just kind of like take a broad broad view of what's happening here. It is pretty absurd that they, first of all, that the county has this many immunities available to them. And this official immunity one in particular is, is really absurd. Their theory here on that one is that is supposed to actually be reserved for individuals, right? But the county says, and Minnesota state law allows counties as employers to invoke this individual immunity vicariously for the county so basically what it what it's saying is that well um there's two ways for counties to get out from under um civil civil rights violations the first they can say well no it was the individual that did it it wasn't us sue them 
And, but then if you do sue them and you succeed, they say, well, <laughs> well, no, the, the, the individual would have been, uh, would have had a visual immunity. So imp- we get the official immunity too. <laughs> so and, that, and that goes to the, uh, sorry to interrupt Java, but that goes to the, um, the work we, that IJ did earlier this year with our 50 shades of gray. Uh, sorry. I always call it that <laughs> 50 shades of immunity report mm-hmm. about state level immunities and how you think it's bad at the federal level. Sometimes in the States, it's even worse. Um, Indeed. In Minnesota really uh, good in some ways, but other ways, nothing to brag about. So continue. Yeah, no, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's, uh, there's a whole host of different immunity doctrines that the states themselves have developed and, and, and made just as terrible as, as the federal immunity doctrines. Um, so yeah, so it says, you know what, you, you raised that official immunity too late, so we're not even going to really review it. Um, but then there's still the question of the statutory immunity, which says that um, counties can't be liable for kind of high-level planning decisions. Right, because we essentially don't want to um, get the courts involved in second guessing them for their for their policy determinations, but they can be liable for operational decisions. Now, query what the difference is. I'm not quite sure <laughs> um, because you know if you're operationalizing a policy, you're still implementing the policy. Um, and actually, the A Circuit says, look, you know what? At first blush. The fact that they this was that they sued over this uh, policy about uh, how to treat everybody does kind of seem like it would actually fall under the kind of planning umbrella and therefore should typically be subjected to this statutory immunity so that they can't be they can't be hauled into court on it on the false imprisonment claim. But um, under Minnesota law, it's the county's burden to actually present evidence. Showing um, why they're how and why they're um, they should be gifted that immunity, and they didn't present any, so they don't they don't get the the statutory immunity here. Um, so it was a, it was a it was a it was a nice example of the judiciary, you know, actually holding the government to its burdens to even meet these immunity standards. Right? It, it acknowledges, look, these immunities are out there; they're very broad, but you can't just like invoke them and expect us to just you know, to just go along because, because you said these magic words. So it was, it was refreshing in that regard. Um, and then the third gambit that the county tried was, well, actually under Minnesota law, there's no such thing as fa- a false imprisonment claim against a county. It has to be brought only, it can only be brought against individuals. Um, and there, what the district court had said was, well, there's a difference between um, a direct false imprisonment claim and a vicarious liability false imprisonment claim. The first one does exist, and here you were, you were, um, you it, the the allegation, the claim is that you were directly responsible for false imprisonment pursuant to this po- policy, and therefore you can be sued for false imprisonment. Um, and so, in, in short, that you know, the Eighth Circuit says, yeah, the district court got this all right, um, and you know. Even if you could be subject to subject to some of these immunities here, you either weighed them, you either raised them too late, or you didn't present any evidence of them. So we're not just gonna we're, we're not just gonna turn a blind eye to this egregious misconduct and let you, you know, let you let you skate here. Um, so it was a refreshing kind of change of pace in in immunity world, um, especially when you when you kind of take a step back and realize what was actually happening here, right? How egregiously how, how egregiously unconstitutional and 
kind of just morally bankrupt it was to just say, well, because you were born in the United States, because you were born outside of the United States, or we think you were born outside of the United States, and we don't even know because who knows we who you know who knows what they're choosing to believe and what not to believe, but we think you might have been born outside of the United States. We're going to hold you here. We're going to detain you longer than we do anybody else, and we're essentially going to. Um, imprison you just because ICE has, has said that they, that they want to come get you, even though we have no reason to have you here in our jail. Um, so it was, it was, you know, it was, it was, a it was a hard fought, hard fought victory, um, against the Noka County, but, um, this product ultimately did manage to get some indication here. Ben, um, did you count or see any immunities that, uh, the court or Java missed here? I, I think I counted to at least seven or eight, but you know, maybe there's some others they should argue. Uh, I, it definitely was chock full of, of most of the immunities that they could have raised. I, I'm not sure if they're obviously like the whole host of qualified immunity and absolute immunity and other things that might've happened for the individual defendants, um, but not for the county defendants. Yeah, I I think that uh, one thing that, that that may have helped them was uh, in the in the state law examination is the the opinion was authored by uh, Judge Strass, who was formerly on the Minnesota Supreme Court for for seven years and had to deal with some of this stuff and uh, in some contexts but not all uh, I know Judge Strass is is critical of some immunities law and so probably saw that. That some of this nonsense that the county was trying to pull just, you know, it, it wasn't time to take it too seriously and get too into the weeds. I also thought it was important. The The point that the Jabba made, I think, is important about the, the compelling interest analysis, um, which was very brief. And as Jabba said, they didn't rule on it. But I thought it was very refreshing to see that the court at least said that they had their doubts about whether you know, cooperating with ICE was a compelling interest. And, you know, in, in IJ's First Amendment work, we're often dealing with strict scrutiny. And often the government will assert, you know, all sorts of things that it claims to be compelling interests. Really, the only compelling interests that the Supreme Court has recognized are things that everybody would acknowledge are compelling, like national security or combating terrorism. Uh, and so it was nice to see that even if they didn't rule on it, the court here was skeptical about anything less than that counting as compelling. Yeah, one thing there's not a lot of case law in is what governmental interests are compelling and what ones are just kind of legitimate, quote unquote. Uh, you often see them kind of thrown around under both levels. And sometimes it depends on what what the uh, what the right is that you're talking about, but um, definitely in this this context, that seems to be yeah. I think you're right, Ben. That seems to be what the the court has identified in, in the past. Well, there's a there's a section in the county's brief at the Eighth Circuit. This one of the subsections is titled uh, "What is it? It's something like oh, uh, uh, a final word on strict scrutiny." <laughs> and what and what they spend like two or three pages essentially doing is saying. Look, you've got it all wrong here. You know, we have a compelling interest in mid. This is all just a matter of unfortunate misnomers, right? They they're saying, look, what we're what you're calling national origin discrimination is we're just identifying a subset of people who are subject to the immigration laws and a subset of people who are not subject to the immigration laws, and we have a compelling interest in helping ICE identify those people. And it's just like, wait, wait a minute, no, but. But you're, you're missing the point here. Number one, 
is that not everybody who's born outside of the United States is subject to the immigration laws. That's the whole point. That's why it's a national a national origin discrimination case because you are assuming the the conclusion here, and it's a it's a wholly discriminatory conclusion that you're that you're assuming. Um, so it was it was interesting to see uh, a section that was hey, let us give viewers some thoughts about strict scrutiny, <laughs> um, and those thought and those thoughts essentially being. Look, we're just we're just kind of trying to be like be good friends to our friends in ICE, and, and what's wrong with that? Well, luckily, strict scrutiny actually meant strict scrutiny uh, in this case, which is not always true, and increasingly, sometimes it seems like is not always true. Well, I will strictly thank both of my good colleagues here today, uh, Jabba and Ben, for uh, their presentations and the uh, cert petition that we will keep a close eye on. That uh, that uh, Ben is working on. Um, also, I wish everyone, because I think this is about where you might be listening to this podcast, a happy new year. Uh, we will see you again in the new year when you can listen to some more short circuit content. But in the meantime, wherever you are and whenever you are listening to this, I would hope that you all get engaged. Mm -hmm.